0: Well, today I have Therese Everson from Focus Strategies joining us to finish our series on small business owners exiting, selling their businesses. So thanks for joining me, Therese.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So rather than me butcher your background and everything that you do, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Focus Strategies and what your role there is and how you ended up in this investment banking environment?
1: Sure. Well, I actually um, started out in investment banking. I actually interned when I was at UT, got my undergraduate in business honors and finance, and then went straight to New York and worked for um, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, before business school. After business school, uh, I, I went to uh, Bear Stearns, then Deutsche Bank. But then I also had a stint in real estate private equity in Dallas, did that for a few years, and then just really wanted to come back to Austin And uh, came across Focus Strategies and um, really loved the people in the firm. So, decided to get back into investment banking and now focus more on the lower middle market firms, which is, you know, they're very different from the larger, you know, bulge bracket firm, but um, have been uh, with here for the past three and a half years.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to start as well, is whenever we're talking about private equity or, or exiting businesses, we talk about different market levels. Help our listeners just define what is a lower middle market firm, and what types of businesses are you helping either sell or acquire?
1: Yeah, I'd say lower middle market is the ten to two hundred fifty million dollar enterprise value. Um, enterprise value being, you know, the, the valuation of the firm, and you know, really we help all industries. So we work in every industry um, except for upstream oil and gas. And, um, and it's m- more majority of what we do, I'd say is business services, mostly Central Texas, although we have uh, worked with firms all throughout Texas, kind of Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, but it's mostly kind of Austin and Central Texas. We've done deals outside of Texas, but it's usually when it's referred to us by someone in Texas. But we work with companies kind of in the three million EBITDA and higher. And but you know we have worked with companies that have less than that, but but that's usually if we think that there's a market like our our most most of our firms are sold to, to private equity firms, and we do have strategic buyers in every process that we go out to, but a lot of times the private equity firms are the ones that pay the highest price, yeah. and that's. Um, Different from what it was five to seven years ago when strategics could pay higher more uh, higher dollars because they get synergies. Well, private equity firms have started getting platform companies and then they do add-on acquisitions. And so they're essentially like a strategic buyer.
0: Have their um, own synergies they're exactly, trying to create. yeah. Yeah. That Plus, you know,
1: they're kind of set up to do deals. Like that's what they do all the time versus a strategic firm may or may not have a, you know, an acquisitions department. They may just be kind of doing it on their own. So it kind of varies depending on the sophistication level of the, of the strategic buyer. But um, we work, like I say uh, a lot of the companies that we sell to are private equity firms. And so, but um, but we'll run a process and don't know how detailed you want to me to get into that, but, you know, usually we'll send it to anywhere from 100 to, 300 buyers or sometimes more potential buyers and then just um, run the process and um, select a buyer from that
0: yeah now many of the families that we serve in the multi-family office are those who have owned family-owned businesses for significant amounts of time one of the questions we often get that we really like about your group is you're not just out there selling it but you're also helping these business owners prepare to sell the business what do I need to get in shape to make the business fetch the highest value in that auction process? Or how do I make it more valuable to a strategic firm? If you could just tell us a little bit about that process.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's several things really. Uh, we like to get involved with a firm, I guess, anywhere from six months to a year or even even longer beforehand. Some companies we work with for several years, just giving them periodic updates. But, but really kind of the biggest things are, you want to make sure that you have the right advisors around you because there's there's multiple aspects of a transaction, multiple parties involved. On the tax side, you want to make sure you have a great wealth advisor like, like your firm, uh, transaction attorney, having someone that's very well-versed in transactions is very important. Um, it's great, you know, when people want to use that the firm, the lawyer that they've used all along. But if they don't have the expertise to know what um, what goes on in like a purchase and sale agreement and all the all the different terms, I mean, I think it's very helpful to have that expertise. And then, then of course, really having an investment bank involved helps you get to the largest market, the biggest set of buyers. But also, it helps you focus on your business because. Continuing to focus on your business is very important because we put together um, a a SIM or confidential information memorandum that has projections, and it's important for you to hit your numbers and to not make sure that business doesn't suffer during the process because it's easy to kind of if you're trying to do it on your own to kind of let the business suffer a little bit just because transactions take a lot of time.
0: Yeah, well, and that could be a big value detractor. And speaking of value detractors and and value creators we know that the world of buying and selling businesses is an ebb and flow. What currently right now are you seeing as big value creators for these these small businesses and then big value detractors?
1: I'd say having a really strong management team is very important. I mean, especially if you're if you've been some you're someone that's been running your business the whole time and you you have your hand in so many things and it's difficult for the company to run without you. I mean, that's definitely something that buyers look at. If you were to go away, you know, and, and a lot of people do, like when they sell the company, they do something else, but a lot of times they stay on. But even so, you want to make sure that you have a management team that's around you that's strong. You want to make sure that you have consistent financial performance historically, because if if you have margins that are declining or revenue has been declining or it's choppy, or even if you have... um I'll say you've been clipping along at a million dollars in EBITDA, and then suddenly you jump to four million. Having consistent performance is important because you may not get full credit for that four million mm-hmm. if you've been at one million for five years. So, consistent performance, strong performance, also being an, being a um, having good growth potential going forward, being in a strong industry, but also just having good um, solid past performance. But then knowing, uh, I guess, giving a buyer comfort that there's good growth opportunities. Whether it's going into new markets or acquisitions or just kind of organically with what with the customers you already have and expanding those relationships, um, that's very positive to have as well. Too, too much customer concentration can also detract, like really anything more than 20% of you know of your business in one customer. It's like when people start thinking that you have customer concentration. So if it's thirty percent, you might start losing value. So trying to make sure that you get a diverse, good diversification in customers, also suppliers too. You know, with the supply chain issues we've been having, you know, the last couple of years, people are going to, are asking those questions more about your suppliers, where you're getting things, and um, you know, making sure that you have good sources and you're not just relying on one, you know, source for all of your uh, materials if that's relevant. Employee turnover, I think can also be a red flag if it's very high, you know, with certain um, businesses, but, but I'd say, you know, strong growth potential, strong history, financials, um, a lot of uh, smaller companies don't audit their financials. And so, getting uh, at least you know an accounting firm to do a review is good a lot of sellers these days are doing seller qvs quality of earnings yeah I was
0: going to ask that is it just a E type situation if there's no audited financials yeah
1: so that's uh, one of our clients um, had never had audited financials and also they had a kind of different working capital cycle than most companies have they basically would get it will take them a year to collect on their revenue on, on on you know a lot of their um a good 70 percent of their revenue and so we recommended they do a quality of earnings and that was extremely helpful and in, in doing that and making making the numbers easier for buyers to understand and to also really give them confidence in the numbers
0: so speaking of a lot of the things you just covered in terms of value detractors value creators one thing that we always, have questions about, or that clients have questions about the valuation. What is, what is my business worth? What is the cash flow of this business worth? You know, they talked to a buddy at the country club or, you know, a friend in, in entrepreneurs organization and they're like, Oh, your company's worth $50 million. And then you have to bring them back down to earth and give them a real sense of not really. Here's why tell us about that process.
1: Sure, that's yeah something we come across quite a bit. Um, So valuation, I guess, is part of our presentation, our initial proposal. We always do a preliminary valuation. We sign an NDA with the company, and then uh, they provide us financials, and we are happy to do a a complimentary, you know, preliminary valuation on the front end. But really, we do that to kind of set their expectations, to kind of give them an idea of what they can expect. You know, we 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 don't ever take the approach of oh, we you can get this sky high value, therefore give it to us because we don't want to. Do that, or I guess try to do that, and then not not meet their expectations. At the end of the day, we want a happy client, you know. That's that's willing to do a reasonable transaction. Uh, so. So we do that uh, evaluation exercise on the front end, and that's based on a number of factors. And it's, um, you know, looking at their financial performance, we look at their, usually it's um, a lot of the companies are EBITDA, multiple based. And so some, some are kind of more revenue, like if they're like a technology or software company, a lot of people will look at revenue, but most of the kind of cash flowing companies, they look at EBITDA and um, earnings before interest, tax depreciation, amortization. And um, they look at multiples in that specific industry. So um, we get different sources. We look at the uh, uh, NASSC code and um, of, of the specific company, and then you um, know look at comp- public comparables. So we do the public comparable analysis. We do the uh, private transaction analysis also, and just look at um, the the valuations based on the multiples. But uh, but there's a number of things that kind of fall into that also, like the size of the company. Any if they're in kind of the lower bracket of the lower metal market in the kind of the there's four different tiers that we call them there's the 10 to 25 25 to 50 50 to 100 and then 100 to 250 and uh, the, the lower the smaller deals as you can imagine get the lower multiples And then the largest transactions, generally speaking, get the highest multiples. And that also varies by industry significantly. So, you know, multiples have held pretty steady kind of through Q3 of 22. We think that potentially, you know, there's some headwinds, right? With Ukraine war, with, you know, global supply, supply chain issues still happening, inflation and interest rates. You know, interest rates have come up quite a bit this year. I know probably going to continue to rise next year, although at a slower pace, but, um, that's going to affect multiples at some point because banks are being more cautious. Private equity firms and buyers aren't, aren't going to be able to get the same amount of leverage. And so that's going to, it's going to have to come from some their returns or they're going to want to try to maintain their returns. And so multiples could could come down or there could be more seller finance, seller financing, uh, different structures of deals where, you know, there's, Maybe a bigger earnout component or seller financing or some kind, just to kind of make up for the the bank debt, the borrowing being a little bit lower.
0: Yeah, and that was a my next question to you was, as we see risk being repriced in the market, that obviously affects the leverage that these companies can acquire these smaller companies with. How do you see that as affecting multiples now and then valuations moving forward?
1: we haven't seen a big change yet but mm. but we do think that that's probably coming next year you know especially if there's a recession you know if if, if performance starts to come down that could also affect it but i think getting less leverage uh, and i've been hearing um some some banks used to get for example or some some private equity firms used to be able to get four times ebitda on leverage and and that's kind of come down to Three uh, in the in some cases, kind of two and a half to two two point seven five times, and that's you know that's a big difference in leverage, and so they're having to put in more equity or make up for it. Like I said, in seller financing, so if people want to get their same value, then it might just be you know that they get some cash today but then some is based on an earnout of some target numbers they hit in one two or three years and and they they get as long as their company performs then they get an additional purchase price consideration but you know we think you know that, that multiples could come down a little bit and hopefully there it's not nothing drastic but um but you know that's not, not something we've seen a lot of yet but i think that it's uh, probably coming next year
0: yeah and i think also we were talking before this podcast, and you had mentioned that the private equity firms aren't so corporate Raider anymore. They're very much now saying, we're building a portfolio, we're creating synergies, and we really want the founders to stay more involved. When in the past, we would have just bought it and let them ride off into the sunset, but they've really recognized the value of founders staying plugged into the business, staying in CEO, president, board advisory roles in order to be more successful with that acquisition. Is that what you're seeing as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, we see that more than 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 you would think. You know, we do still have the people that, you know, sell their company and go buy the boat and then go off and do other things. But a lot of them, and really there's a couple of reasons, like a, a lot of people uh, don't realize that a lot of private equity firms don't want to buy 100%. They want to, you to roll either 10% of your equity or 20% or Sometimes even as much as forty percent, and so if you have that much equity still in the company, then chances are you want to make sure that you're going to get value, or you're not. You don't want to hand over the reins, and so a lot of people opt to stay in. In fact, I had a client uh, that we closed the deal last year around this time that uh, they originally told us we want to get out, we want to be out hundred percent, but um, but then as they went through the management presentations and met with the different buyers, and they really clicked with this one private equity firm and, and that one of the, the CEO decided that he was going to stay another five years. And so he changed his mind mid process and wow. just decided to stay. And so he, he, uh, he ended up rolling, um, I don't remember if it was 20% or 25, but I think in total between the two owners, it was something like 25% that they rolled in the equity. And um, and they also like the fact that this private equity firm was gonna be providing additional growth capital for either acquisitions or new equipment or another location. So um, so that's always exciting too, you know, being being able to get a second bite at the Apple, you know, you sell for a valuation today. You know, the private equity firm's goal is to grow the company to at least double the size, if not more. And then so being able to participate in that is is really attractive to uh, a lot of our clients.
0: Yeah. And you talked about some people are fortunate enough to be able to keep a percentage of equity in the company. And I think maybe switching to a little bit more softer of a question is a lot of these owners, their identity, their value, their day-to-day life, what they do and who they are is tied into the identity of their company. And if they sell that or exit that, that makes them a lot more hesitant to just hand it off and then have their entire life work just vanish and turn into something else. How do you help coach the clients you have in that space through those type of situations?
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's different for everybody, but yeah, there are a lot of firms and and even like family owned businesses, like where they have multiple family members working there. I mean, it's really just trying to walk them through like what their goals are. Do they want to stay? Do they want to leave? And, and really just helping them throughout the process because sometimes their identity is um, um, closely tied to the company. But I think it's just kind of a a different, uh, you know, really kind of Talking them through every stage of the process, um, and and really also talking about how the employees are going to be treated afterwards, and employment contracts, how they're going to be incentivized going forward, whether they're involved or they're not, that becomes a lot more important to some of the owners. Is you know talking about a lot of those things on the front end during the management presentations and saying you know how do you guys plan to run this? Are, are you going to be on just sitting on the board? Are you going to be you know you're going to have a person that's taking over and the new CEO like. A lot of um, that matters a lot more to um, our clients than if they were, say, a public company. You know that yeah. didn't really have a real stake uh, in in the company or a more emotional stake. But um, you know, I think talking through with the buyer, getting getting really to know them, because. The manager presentations aren't just, you know, you're trying to sell your company. It's a two-way street. Like you're, you're choosing, you're talking to multiple uh, potential buyers and you, you're choosing the best one for your company. So it's, it's a two-way interview that, you know, sometimes uh, people don't realize at the beginning, but, you know, kind of as you go through the different management presentations, you know, you're, you're interviewing the buyers too, and you want to make sure that they're going to treat your company, your brand kind of the way you, um, you would like it to be treated and your employees.
0: Yeah. I think that last point, the employees, you know, being a a business owner myself, I'm very protective of my partners and my employees. And I think there's a lot of stories out there about business owners, you know, throwing their employees to the wind and firing people. My experience, it's actually been quite the opposite during rough times Many of the small business owners I know are the people who don't take paychecks so they don't have to fire people. They don't take paychecks so that those employees can feed their families. And then they they make it up on the backside as a, as the company recovers the or the economy rebounds. And along those lines, please just share with us a, a really good feel-good story that you have where the business owner has really worked to protect his employees or create a great exit for those he cares about or she cares about.
1: Yeah, well, um, one company that we worked with last year, you know, just uh, really kind of asked, you know, a lot of the questions on on the, you know, during the process in the front end um, with the buyers kind of before the LOI was signed and just, you know, wanted to make sure that. A certain few key people were uh, were going to be part of the uh, company going forward, and luckily, that particular buyer wanted to keep everybody. And there was some other buyers that you know weren't necessarily. They were going to you know put pr- bring in um, one or two people to really kind of run the business, and and it felt a little bit different, like they were going to be changing things a little bit too much. But you know he, the buyer was basically selected because of, you know, the rapport they got with the team, the fact that they were going to be keeping everybody, that they were going to put an incentive pool together, they really kind of drilled down on that. And um, I think this, it was something around 10% of the equity was going to be allocated among employees. And they even talked about which specific employees were going to be getting, uh, and it wasn't all completely allocated, but they were kind of saying, we want to make sure this person gets something, this person gets something. And so I think it was just nice to see that how much, you know, that uh, company cared about their employees and how they, you know, were really just wanting to make sure that everyone gotten taken care of and not just themselves.
0: Yeah, very true. Well, I think we're right up against our time limit for today, but just to wrap things up, tell us how, if someone is listening to this podcast and they want to get a hold of you to find someone with high competency and high character to help them exit their business, how would they reach you?
1: Well, um, just go to our our website, Focus Strategies Investment Banking. We're based here in Austin. All of our contact information is on the website for all the directors. And um, I think we might have a Something you can download, but um, yeah, just uh, reach out to us, and uh, we're we also you know are participating in a lot of different organizations and uh, throughout Austin and different cities, and so I think you can just kind of reach out to any of us, really.
0: And Therese, thank you again so much for joining me here today.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.cineseracapital.com. Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cineseracapital and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.